may have noticed, are not great with the concept of delayed gratification. A child might well have a massive emotional meltdown because they are told they can't have ice cream at the moment, they can have it after dinner. Not that this happens in my house. Of course, it's, it's easy to pick on kids for their, their lack of being able to, to think in terms of delayed gratification. I do the exact same thing, and I bet you do as well. We just know how to have emotional meltdowns in socially acceptable adult ways, like complaining on social media. Uh, I've been well-trained to expect my Amazon deliveries to show up at my house no more than two days after I place the order. And if I can't have it in two days or less, well, I'm not sure if it's worth having. Delayed gratification as a human race is not our strong suit. And yet we find in Scripture that so much of our our lives as Christians uh, is comprised of living in this tension of promises that have been made but fulfillment that is delayed. It's part of our our growth and spiritual maturity, uh, learning to live and persevere in the present by faith in God's promises for the future. That's what we read in Micah chapter 4. You recall, I mentioned this when we began the book of Micah, that biblical prophecy includes both forthtelling, right, proclaiming God's Word in the present, and foretelling, announcing the, the promises of God's work in the future. And in the, the first three chapters of Micah, with the, the short exception of two verses in chapter 2, we've seen primarily this, this idea of forthtelling, these sobering proclamations of God's righteous judgment against sinners in Micah's day. And now in chapters 4 and 5, there's a significant key change. As Micah moves from primarily proclaiming God's Word to his people in the present to announcing God's promises for His people in the future. The reality of the present sin and present suffering isn't absent, but the emphasis has shifted from judgment to hope. And and this serves a distinct purpose for Micah's audience and for us as well. God's, God's promises about the future are not given so that we can chart out exactly what's going to happen or so that we can read the newspaper and identify which world events match up with which biblical prophecies, nor the the promises of God given so that we can simply satisfy our curiosity about what's going to happen. God's promises for the future form the foundation for our perseverance in the present, and that's what we find in, in Micah 4. God's promises for the future form the foundation for our perseverance in the present. So we'll break Micah 4 down into two parts. Verses 1 to 8, we see God's promises for the future motivate our faithfulness in the present. And then in verses 9 to 13, God's promises for the future anchor us amid the hardships of the present. So let's pray and we'll begin. Father, again, we come to you thankful that you speak to us in your word. 
We're thankful that we, we can open this book and know that these are the very words of God, that you have written this for our instruction, and that by your Spirit, you open our eyes so that we can understand what you've written. So, Lord, will you help us now? Help us to understand what you've written. We pray the Spirit would work in us by his word to make us more like Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. First then, God's promises for the future uh, motivate us to live faithfully in the present. Uh, Micah 4.1 is another abrupt transition in the book of Micah. So in, in Micah 3.12, the end of Micah 3, we read that the ultimate sign of God's judgment against His people is this, this destruction that is foretold about the temple the place where God dwelt in the midst of His people, the place of blessing, that was going to be destroyed. Vividly symbolizes the withdrawal of God's blessing from His people, His presence with them. And the mountain on which the temple stood was going to become nothing more than another hill overgrown with trees. And then we turn the page to Micah 4, and Somewhat suddenly, we, we have introduced several promises that God makes to His people about the future. So read the promises in verses 1 to 4 and verses 6 to 8, and we're going to come back around to verse 5 in a few moments. These promises look forward to what the Bible calls the last days or the latter days. This is the time when God's kingdom would be established, His enemies defeated, His people restored and blessed forever. So you see this kind of prophetic time stamp in verse 1 and in verse, four, uh, verse 6, rather, in the last days or in that day. Whenever you read the prophets and you hear something like in the last days or in that day, it's referring to this, this time in the future when God's kingdom would come. That was their, their expectation. Now, perhaps when you hear the, the, the term last days or, or, or latter days, you, you think it's referring to the years immediately preceding Christ's return. So when people ask, are we living in the last days, what they often mean is, is Jesus going to return in my lifetime? And my answer to that question is, I have no idea, and neither do you, and neither does anyone. But, but in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, the term last days refers to everything between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And the last days began 2,000 years ago with the coming of Christ. And so the author of the book of Hebrews can say that in many times and in many ways in the past God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. The last days began 2,000 years ago with the coming of Christ, and will continue until Christ returns. And so if somebody asks you, are we living in the last days, the answer is yes. And we have been for 2,000 years, and we will for another 2,000 years if the Lord tarries. So as we look at the promises that Micah relates about these last days, we'll see that their, their last days fulfillment has already begun, but it's not yet complete, and it won't be complete until Christ comes again. So what does God promise about the future? First, there's a promise about God's restored presence. Look again at verse 1. 
In these last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. The promise is that, you know, in in Micah 3.12, the temple mount had been described as this abandoned, derelict, foreclosed house, doomed to demolition. But the picture here couldn't be more different. The house is no longer vacant. It is again the Lord's temple because God dwells there. And the mountain on which it stood is no longer simply overgrown with ruins and brush, but it will be established and exalted. The shame that's brought about in Micah 3 is completely reversed and more than reversed. The place where, where God dwells among His people is exalted beyond anything that was seen previously, indeed anything else in all creation. Uh, The idea here, I don't think, is to describe geographic or geological realities like the Temple Mount suddenly growing in size to tower over Mount Everest. Now, God can do that if He wants, but I don't think that's the point here. I think this is a poetic way of describing the surpassing glory and exaltation of the place where God dwells with His people. Isaiah prophesied something similar to Micah. They prophesied around the same time. And Isaiah says, in that day, note again, this is that that end time or last days language, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner For the peoples, the nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This promise has begun to be fulfilled, first in the the coming of the root of Jesse, Jesus Christ. God with us, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, the one who was the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us, who spoke of Himself as the temple, the very place of God's presence. And the glory of the temple in Jerusalem paled in comparison to the glory of Jesus, God incarnate, when He was raised from the dead. And with His ascension into heaven, He sent His Spirit, who now dwells in His people, the church, which Paul calls the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so now God is is uniquely present not in a specific geographic location, but with a specific people, the church. And yet this is, this is still just a penultimate step. For one day, this promise of God's restored dwelling with His people will be fulfilled when Christ Himself comes again, and it will finally be said, behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. So this is a promise of God's restored presence with His people. Second, there's a, there's a promise here that all peoples will worship God. Look at verse 2. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. 
The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. If you think about what's happening in Micah's day, this is a, this is a far cry from the present experience of his audience. Right? In, in Micah's day, the Assyrian army and their, and their mercenaries were laying siege to Jerusalem. The nations had indeed come to Jerusalem, but it wasn't to worship. It was to conquer. Throughout the, the waning years of the, the two kingdoms, both Israel and Judah were constantly oppressed and harassed and extorted by foreign powers like Assyria and Egypt and Babylon. And yet, here Micah says there's going to come a day when the nations are not going to come to conquer God's people, but to worship God Himself. From the place where God dwells in the midst of His people, His Word flows out with the result that multitudes of people, Gentiles no less, non-Jews, flock to follow the God of Israel. This was something that we, that we read with regularity in the prophets, that in the end, God's people are not going to be Jews exclusively, but will include Gentiles as well. From the beginning, this was God's purpose when He promised Abraham that He would make him great and that all peoples on the earth would be blessed through you. So here we see that promise continued. We have a, a promise that in the future, Gentiles, people who are, who are not in covenant with God, will be grafted into the people of God. They will respond to the word of the Lord, which flows out from Jerusalem, and they will in turn flow to Jerusalem to worship in response to this word. This promise began its fulfillment in the first coming of the Lord Jesus as well. And in the creation of His church is the gospel. The word of the Lord was proclaimed first in Jerusalem and then gradually moved outward from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as it did, the Gentiles heard the word and turned to the Lord and became part of God's new people by virtue of the new covenant ratified in the shed blood of Christ. So now this promise is in the process of being fulfilled as Jesus Christ builds His church by His Word and Spirit, calling people from all nations to worship and follow Him. But of course, it's not yet complete. We'll come to an ultimate fulfillment in the end when at the return of Christ we find a, a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb in worship. It's a promise that all peoples will come to worship God. There's also here a promise of permanent peace and security for God's people. Look at verses 3 and 4. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Some of you Pentagon folks will be out of a job. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. And no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. It's again a very different picture from what they are experiencing at the time. Um, Micah's 
audience seeing the Assyrian army at the gates of Jerusalem, the prospect of expulsion and exile from their land, the promise of of peace and security is probably the furthest thing from their minds. But in this promised future, warfare between nations and peoples is a thing of the past. And in fact, the peace is, is so permanent that there's no longer any need for arms of any kind. In such a world, all people can, can rest securely without fear. And, and all of this is, is possible because in verse 4 we read, the Lord Almighty has spoken. God has decreed it and He will do it and no one can stay His hand. This promise is fulfilled at least in some small part as the gospel brings peace and reconciliation with it between peoples. Now, it's readily apparent that this does not happen all the time and everywhere. And there have been plenty of examples of it distinctly and tragically not happening. But the supernatural effect of the gospel is is not only to create peace between God and people. That's primary, no doubt. But it's also brings about peace between peoples who have peace with God. And so such reconciliation among those who are reconciled to God is an implication, an effect of the gospel, which gathers all people together under the blood-bought fellowship of the banner of Christ and Him crucified. But of course, this promise won't come to ultimate fulfillment until Christ The God of peace comes again to finally defeat sin and Satan and death, to judge His enemies, glorify His people, and establish His perfect reign. Like Micah promised, it will be accomplished because the Lord Almighty has spoken. And so we read in Revelation 21, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And all of this because He who is seated on the throne will say, Behold, I am making all things new. It's a promise of peace, security, eternally for God's people. Then in verses 6 and 7, we find a a promise that, that God is going to gather and restore His people. Look at verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. And the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. Micah has clearly said throughout the book that the people of Israel are going to be exiled and scattered because of their unfaithfulness to God and His covenant. But there is here a promise that that is not permanent. There will be a future restoration and and regathering of of God's people, a a remnant who will worship and follow God, who will have His, His law written on their hearts and who will dwell under His righteous rule. 
This picks up on the promises that we, we read in Micah chapter 2, verse 12, where God said that He was going to gather a remnant of His people, Israel. And so not only is there a future for the people, for the nations of the world who will come and worship God, there's also a future restoration for the people of Israel despite their previous unfaithfulness. Grace. The Israelites expected this restoration to happen when they physically returned to the land 70 years after they were exiled to Babylon. But these conditions certainly did not materialize then. Rather, the fulfillment of this promise began when Jesus came, when He called 12 Jews to follow Him as His disciples, symbolically constituting a new people, a new Israel. And if you read Romans 11, you can trace how how Paul, himself a Jew, speaks of the fulfillment of these promises. That even now there is a remnant of Israel who have been restored. It's those who, like Paul, have placed their trust and follow their Messiah, Jesus. They are the, the first fruits, the beginning of this fulfillment, of the promise of God to restore His people. And it will come to a complete fulfillment at the time of His coming again, when God will demonstrate His faithfulness to the promises that He has made and fully and finally gather the remnant of Jews who will be saved by grace through faith in Jesus the Messiah. It's a promise that God is going to restore His people. And then, as we discussed last week, there's an ultimate promise that God Himself will reign through His King. Look at verse 8. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. So with the exile looming, Jerusalem, the the holy city and the royal citadel of David's line was going to be destroyed, the royal house and dynasty broken. But God promises here that the former dominion would be restored, that the kingship would return. And despite the precipitous decline of the monarchy, both in power and in godliness, God reiterates that His promise stands that one of David's descendants will indeed reign on His throne forever. The kingdom will be restored and David's son will be the king. This expands on the promise of Micah 2.13 where God said that He Himself would be the king who who leads the people out of exile and restores them and shepherds them. And again here, we we get this subtle hint of the dual identity of this promised king. So we read in verse 8 that the the former dominion, that is, the, the kingdom and dynasty of David and his family would be restored. But at the same time, in verse 7, we read that it was the Lord himself who would reign over them in Mount Zion. And so this king is somehow both David's son and David's Lord. This promise began to be fulfilled as the others, I'm sure you could guess, at the first coming of Jesus when Gabriel announced to Mary that God would give her a son and that that son would be given the throne of his father David and that he would reign over Jacob's descendants forever and ever and his kingdom would have no end. And the king did indeed return to Jerusalem, didn't he? Humble, 
mounted on a donkey. And now Jesus, crucified, resurrected, ascended, king, is reigning. All authority on heaven, uh, in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he's, he's building his kingdom through the church, the embassy and the outpost of his rule. And he welcomes whosoever will to come, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be made new through repentance and faith in Jesus and to become citizens of his kingdom of grace. Of course, as we look at the world, we know that His rule is not yet complete and uncontested. And so, this promise of God's ultimate reign through, through King Jesus will come to final fulfillment when He comes again and finally puts down the insurgency of the world and the flesh and the devil and reigns in glory and grace forever and ever. These wonderful promises that we read in Micah 4, however distant they seem, are not merely to have a comforting effect on God's people, though they certainly should do that. They should also have a motivating effect, compelling us to live faithfully in the present as we bank on God's promises for the future. So look back at verse 5, right, right in the middle of this list of promises, Micah breaks and speaks to his audience directly. And what does he say? He says, all the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. It's a call to faithfulness. God's promises for the future motivate our faithfulness in the present. This is important. Because the, 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 the confident, assured hope of God's promises is a powerful motivator. It's not by fear of God's punishment that Christians are motivated to godliness and faithfulness. It's by hope in His promises. And yet, we so often default to motivation by fear. Motivation to godliness by, by fear is nothing more than slavish legalism. And so, out of fear of, of punishment, if we don't do certain things, God will be mad at us. God might not like us very much. Out, out of fear of, of punishment, we are drawn to a form of obedience, a form of godliness, but it's contrived. It's not obedience from the heart, not godliness that actually pleases God. Yet it seems to me there are so many Christians who attempt to, to motivate themselves to love and good works through the application of just such fear. But it's the beauty and love and joy of Christ and His gospel promises that draws us that motivates us to love God and love others. Titus 2.11 says that it's, it's not the fear of punishment, but the grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness and live upright lives in the present age. And we live those upright lives by the grace of God as we wait Paul says to Titus, as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's the grace and promises of God that frees us from slavery to sin and the law and creates in us new life, compels in us 
obedience, but obedience to God from the heart. So, as you reflect for a moment here, what motivates you to walk with God every day? Is it a fear that you might not be doing enough, that you might not be good enough? God might secretly be angry at you and you need to have your quiet time or, or do a good deed in order to, to check a box so that God won't check on you? Or is it the pure graciousness of the gospel and an, an eager expectation and hope of the fulfillment of His promises and confidence that He will keep you by His power as He has promised to do? The former is a, is a recipe for brittle, fearful, tepid, pseudo-Christianity. But the latter is joyful, vibrant, powerful, authentic Christianity. God's promises for the future motivate our faithfulness in the present. Now, you could imagine Micah's audience responding to him saying, well, Micah, that sounds all quite wonderful, but in case you haven't noticed, Jerusalem is under siege right now. This isn't helping us in our present circumstance. And so then we find Micah, as we we go into verses 9 to 13, Micah turns from a focus on just what's coming in the future, what's promised, to how God's promises about the future anchor us amid the hardships of the present. So that's what we see in verses 9 to 13. Again, there are two sections here, verses 9 and 10 and verses 11 to 13. Uh, Both verse 9 and verse 11 begin with the Hebrew word now, sort of marks them off as as separate units of thought, Uh, but it also has the effect of of snapping us back from thinking about just the last days to thinking about now. Here's what's going on now. You have to consider the harsh realities of the present. Micah's commentary about the present situation in Israel as he's gone through in the previous chapters, his commentary has been very ominous and sober as it's described sin and judgment. But here you may notice that the tone is different. God's compassion for His people, while never absent, is far more evident here. The focus has shifted, the accent's not on the discipline that God's people are enduring, but on the rescue and restoration that is promised through and on the other side of this discipline. So so Micah is effectively pulling back the curtain to show something of what God is doing, what God promises to do in the future in light of their present hardship and adversity. And this is one of the reasons that the Bible is such a precious book. It does not present an abstract, idealistic picture of spirituality that's detached from reality. Instead, it takes seriously the present suffering and struggle that people go through. Just read through the Psalms and you'll see what I mean. There's no rose-colored glasses, no mere spiritual platitudes painting over sin and suffering. God and His Word deals with it directly. And so, Micah, in these verses, shows how the the promises of God anchor His people and cause them to persevere, even though they are suffering and suffering greatly in the present. First, verses 9 and 10, God's promise of redemption anchors us through present suffering. 
Let's read again with me, starting in verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. So this is the description of the present situation that the people of Judah are in, and it's dire. Uh, The judgment brought upon them by their sin has seized them like the pain of a woman in labor, a pain which advisedly I will not attempt to describe. And yet it's interesting that childbirth is the metaphor that God uses to describe this suffering, that, that there's promise of something beautiful and precious on the other side. A promise of what is to come provides a basis for endurance required in the present. Again, the the judgment that's been decreed for the people according to God's covenant with them is exile. The kingdom will be broken. They will have no king, as Micah says here. They'll be exiled from the land and held captive in Babylon. But unlike the the previous announcements of exile, this one comes with a distinct promise. You will go to Babylon, and there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. The present suffering the people are enduring has uh, has as, as its end not destruction, but redemption. And isn't it interesting that God specifies that the deliverance and the redemption that He promises is going to happen to His people there on the other side of His discipline. Perhaps there are hardships that we go through that God has designed that we might receive His redemption there and not here. That promise ought to serve to anchor God's people amid their present hardships. And it's, it's much like we read from 1 Peter chapter 1 earlier. Peter refers to Christians as exiles, draws this parallel between Christians in this world and the people of Israel going into to exile. Peter says, you are exiles, strangers, sojourners, foreigners, who now for a little while have had to suffer all kinds of trials which have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so amid the the suffering and the distress we face in this world, we are to persevere, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.13, by setting our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us at the coming of Jesus Christ. That is, we are to set our hope fully on the promise of God for the future to anchor us in the midst of suffering in the present. Then verses 11 to 13, we see a, a promise of victory despite present defeat. Look at verse 11. But now many nations are gathered against you, They say, let her be defiled. 
Let our eyes gloat over Zion. So this describes foreign armies battering at the gates of Jerusalem, which will ultimately lead to the destruction of the city and the temple and the exile of God's people. But despite this this catastrophic defeat, things are not always as they appear. Verse 12, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan, that He has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. So God in His superintending providence has used the nations like tools to bring judgment on His people. But these wicked kings and their armies, they're not going to escape His judgment themselves. They too will be subject to His justice in the end. And here they're described as if they're sheaves of wheat that have been brought to a, to, to a threshing floor to be beaten and trampled. The imagery of, of threshing and, and winnowing grain is common descriptor in the Bible for judgment, dividing the wheat from the chaff. And amazingly, this is done, we read in verse 13, not just by, by God, but by God through His people through the people whose defeat looks to be so imminent and total in the present. Verse 13, Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron and I will give you hooves of bronze. And you will break to pieces many nations and you will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Here God's people personified as Daughter Zion are pictured as an ox brought to this threshing floor to trample the grain. And this people no longer appears to be weak and easily beaten as they once did. Now they have horns of iron and hooves of bronze. They've been made invincible and their victory is assured. The promise that God and His people will be victorious over wickedness and that justice will be satisfied didn't alleviate the real suffering that the people of Israel were going through at the time. And the same promises don't alleviate the suffering that we endure in our time, but it should serve to anchor our hope in the future with a a certainty that all accounts will be settled, no injustice will remain, and God will lead His people in glorious and eternal triumph. As we see in in Micah 4, that the the promises of God for the future ought to have this motivating and anchoring effect on God's people in the present. They should ground us in the, the certainty of what God has said, God who never lies, what He has promised in His unbreakable Word, and, and so it should lead us to persevere and press on in faithfulness to Him. And if the, the promises for the future don't have this sort of faithfulness motivating, hope-anchoring effect on you, it may well be a referendum on, on your patience and contentment and trust in God. It may show how much you want in the present and not what you are willing to have in the future. Like I said before, delayed gratification is not our strong suit, is it? We want everything now. And so, We'll do whatever we can to get it now. We think, if I were God, I wouldn't make my people wait for anything. I'd give them everything they want when they want it. But we don't even parent that way. So why would we ever imagine that the only wise God would do that with us? 
Patience is a virtue, we say, unless, of course, I'm the one who's asked to be patient. God's promises sound great, but they seem quite far off, and they don't really touch the reality of my suffering and struggle right now. I'm, I'm not so sure that I can trust Him to follow through. And in any event, it's, it's too long to wait. I mean, have you ever thought that? Yeah, I have. When we say things like that, we're really just acting like children who with no concept of delayed gratification think that a five-minute wait is an eternity and who eye their parents with suspicion, not quite trusting that they're actually going to make good on their words, scheming backup plans to get what they want in case their parents don't come through. But God, like a gentle and compassionate father, corrects us and He reminds us that that He's trustworthy and that He's furnished proof of His perfect faithfulness by giving His Son for our sins and raising Him from the dead, this great guarantee that all of His promises will come to fulfillment in Christ. For if He has not spared His only Son but given Him up for us all, how will He not also graciously give us everything that He has promised? Moreover, He's given us the Holy Spirit, who is His down payment, guaranteeing our own participation in those future promises. And so He reminds us that these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That light and momentary trouble that Paul speaks of, maybe 80 or 90 years, seems like an eternity to us. But God, who knows the end from the beginning, says it's, it's but a moment. It can't even be compared to the promise of eternal glory. And so, Paul tells us we are to fix our eyes not, what, uh, not on what is seen, struggles, hardships, whatever in this world tends to take our eyes off of God's promises. Instead, we're to fix our eyes on what is unseen, His precious promises in Christ, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So we fix our eyes on the unbreakable, sure, certain promises of God and place our hope there. Hope in His promises for the future become a steady foundation for our perseverance as His people in the present. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your great mercy that you have given us your precious promises, not only that you have, have made them and planned them, but that you have told us what they are. You've told us the things that you've promised, and you will be faithful. And so we pray that you would confirm that in our hearts, in our minds. Help us to trust you, knowing that your word is unbreakable and you never lie. Help us to be motivated to love and good works, faithfulness and godliness by, by the promise, the hope that you have given us. Anchor us through your promises in Christ that we might be able to withstand any of the storms that come to us 
and be delivered safely into our eternal haven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the privilege now to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is itself a sign and symbol of the promises of God.